Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The final stage of England's lockdown easing was delayed this week as Boris Johnson admitted that more time was needed to vaccinate the country. The sheer scale of the vaccine rollout has made our position incomparably better than in previous waves. But now is the time to ease off the accelerator. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, We'll be looking at the latest on coronavirus and why the Prime Minister, who you heard at the top, decided to delay the end of all restrictions until July the 19th. What can be achieved in that time? And does the Delta variant mean further problems ahead? Health editor Sarah Neville will explain, along with Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard. And later, we'll be examining the shock Liberal Democrat victory in the Cheshire and Amersham by-election this week. How did they manage to beat the Tories for the first time in their traditional blue heartland? Chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley will discuss, along with political correspondent Jasmine Cameron Sleshy. With plenty to discuss, let's crack on to the main topic of the week. England has been gradually easing out of its lockdown restrictions, but the success of the UK's vaccination programme has not been enough to combat the rapid spread of the Delta variant, of which first originated in India. So, with a rather heavy heart, Boris Johnson decided to delay the final easing of lockdown until late July. But there does appear to be a shift among the government's thinking, especially its medical and scientific advisers, who seem to acknowledge there will be a point when the risk balance changes and the country opens up fully. Sir Patrick Vallance, the chief scientific advisor, touched on this at the number 10 press conference. This is a virus that's going to be with us forever. If you look back and look at the increases we're seeing now, if we didn't have the vaccination we've got, we would be looking at a question of, is more lockdown needed? Sarah and Eva, welcome back to the podcast. Let's begin with the overall picture. The COVID scenario seems to be quite worrying again. We're now up to over 9,000 infections a day, but so far the number of deaths is still very low. And that would suggest the vaccines are working and we're not going to have a very disastrous third wave that mirrored the first and second. Yes, so on Thursday, the number of daily cases was back to as high as it's been since the middle of February. And I think it would have been incredibly hard for Boris Johnson to have pressed ahead with lifting lockdown restrictions when every day was bringing such a large exponential rise in cases. But there are some little glimmers of hope, I think, although the daily rise is still very large in proportional terms, the rise is is getting less steep. Over the last week, I think we had a little bit of a blip on Thursday, but by and large, the story of the last week has been that every day, the level of the increase has been reducing. And as you rightly say, Seb, although the link with hospitalisation certainly hasn't been entirely broken, 
they are happening at a much lower level than they were in the first and second waves. The relationship is still there, but it's not looking at the moment anyway, nearly as as grim as it was. And I think the other fascinating thing to look at is the difference in the age distribution of those being taken into hospital. Whereas last May, we did some calculations um, uh, at the FT, my wonderful colleague, John Byrne Murdoch, discovered that last May, 73% of hospitalizations were among over 65s. And now it's just 27%. And that really is living proof that the vaccines are working, the the highly double-vaxxed over 65-year-old population is by and large being protected from falling so seriously ill that they have to be taken into hospital. Well, Jim Picard's great to have you back on as well. Johnson's decision to delay that step four easing that would have seen all social distancing restrictions fall away in England, it wasn't really a surprise, was it, that we'd heard from officials and ministers. They'd really rolled the pitch for some time on this. There was this two-week break in the middle where they're going to review the date on July the 5th, just in case it looks a bit better than expected. But the general view in Westminster this week seems to have been it's going to be July the 19th when those restrictions are eased. By the time the news came, we'd already read it all over the place, including reporting in the FT by you, Seb. But I think, you know, from the perspective of those who are opposed to lockdown, who've always been a bit uncomfortable with with these restrictions, you know, they make the point that at the beginning of the crisis, the Prime Minister seemed to imply it would be over by the summer. You can see the point of, of these critics who who say that the government keeps changing the goalposts. And, you know, Johnson made clear that although there could be a two-week review and therefore the restrictions come earlier, it's not inconceivable that they could actually end up being even later. Well, this is the question, really, I think everyone's scratching their heads, Sarah, that you'd look at that scale of infections that is growing very quickly Could it be it goes beyond July the 19th? Because if we get to that point and infections are still running very high and if those hospital numbers are starting to creep up, you can always already see the scientific and medical advisors telling the prime minister we just need a little bit longer. And that's what libertarian minded conservative MPs have been warning about this week. I guess fundamentally, you know, as throughout the pandemic, this is going to be a political decision, isn't it, about what Britons are prepared to tolerate. I mean, Chris Whitty spoke to the NHS Confederation on Thursday, and he was being very upfront about the fact that there will be another autumn or winter surge. I guess the question is, is, you know, it's a sort of conversation to be had with the public, isn't it, about what level of deaths we're prepared to accept, which sounds very brutal. But, you know, the comparison with flu that's often made that in a bad flu season, we will get 20,000 deaths. Certainly none of us think twice about getting on public transport or or going into the office. So I think the, the question of the pressure on the NHS, I think at the moment, is not so much about the impact of COVID patients per se, but rather the impact that the relatively small number of COVID patients we do have is having on the ability of the NHS to restore normal services. It's got this you know, tremendous backlog, 5.1 million patients going untreated. I'm actually genuinely surprised that this hasn't become more of a political issue than it has. I keep waiting for the emblematic story that we've seen in, in political administrations gone by, where there is one case of somebody who dies on a waiting list, which 
serves to dramatise the the pressure that the entire NHS is under. We haven't yet had that, but surely we will. And that would add a very difficult additional dimension, I think, to the political decision about when to finally lift lockdown. And Jim, I think a hint at the fact the government doesn't see this going on and on is the example there is no extra funding for the Treasury, that the furlough schemes are going to start to wind up this summer. There's no further support packages. And there's obviously been some unhappiness this week because there's huge swathes of the economy that are still not able to open, as well as things like nightclubs. You've got pubs that can't operate at full capacity. You've got various entertainment venues. So really, it's still going to be a pretty tricky time over the summer for them. Many businesses. Yeah, I mean, our colleague uh, Andy Bounce spoke to the Chancellor yesterday, and Rishi Sunak was sticking to this line that the support will continue till the end of September. And they deliberately went large and they deliberately went long because of the uncertainty whereby they couldn't be absolutely certain that every restriction would be lifted by the end of June. But below that kind of macro umbrella of support, there are these gradual withdrawals which are going to be very acutely felt by businesses in certain sectors. So Firstly, the furlough scheme, which supports people who are out of work with 80% of their salaries. From the start of July, companies are going to have to, employers are going to have to pay 10% of that uh, money. At the same time, business rate support is going to be gradually withdrawn over the summer. So although the state is still there propping up these companies, you know, if you're a nightclub or you're a theatre and you're not open to capacity, if you are an organiser of music festivals and you're going to have to abandon them altogether this season... You know, there are serious concerns. And, um, you know, you look at the West End where footfall is about 50% of usual. That means that, you know, although there's this trickle of people coming in, a lot of businesses that would normally be profitable are probably not profitable at the moment. And they've built up a load of debt during the crisis. And I asked Boris Johnson at the press conference a couple of days ago, were there any plans to potentially extend support beyond September and quite typically, I suppose the Prime Minister managed to, to dodge the question. But there are going to be serious issues around particular industries, such as aviation or companies that make wing parts or travel agents, or indeed some of these leisure hospitality industries we've just been talking about, where the government has to make a very difficult decision in September or as to whether unemployment is going to go through the roof, potentially, or whether they keep extending support. And this question, Sarah, of what is the acceptable level of deaths, our colleagues uh, Clive and Oliver have been looking at this this week because when you look at the government's official data, there is going to be a third wave. There's no doubt that once you open up everything, you take the handbrake off the car, to use a metaphor, then really you're in a situation where the virus will spread again. But the question is, is it going to find vulnerable people of which some will become seriously ill and some will sadly go into hospital and not make it out again? Or is it just going to hit that wall of vaccinated people and eventually run out? And I guess at some point, you've got to release that handbrake. And, you know, there may be some in government who argue, well, maybe July the 19th is the best possible moment for that, because you don't want to be doing it later in the year when the NHS will start to get burdened with the flu season. And if you just keep on waiting, then you could end up just staying in some form of lockdown for a much longer period. Chris Whitty was talking very interestingly, I thought, about how we may also this year get a very bad flu season because one of the the weird sort of epidemiological dividends, as it were, of of last winter, the fact that we were not socially mixing, we were mostly staying in our own households, was there were exceptionally low levels of flu. And this applied around the world, in fact. 
the danger is that this year flu does come back with a vengeance and we combine, you know, a, a relatively limited COVID wave with a large flu and other respiratory infections wave. I mean, I think the other question that really is immensely sensitive and hard to talk about is that it does seem the vast majority of those who are becoming infected sufficiently seriously to be hospitalised despite the fact that they've had two doses of the vaccine are very frail people. So the, the difficult equation is how many restrictions the country is prepared to accept to protect a small number of extremely vulnerable, elderly and sick people. That is a, a, a decision that I'm certainly glad I don't have to make, but it is a politically sensitive and difficult one. And we've got a sense, Jim, that there is a bit more of a backlash now building among the Conservative Party that we saw comments from Jacob Rees-Mogg, the leader of the House of Commons this week, who spoke on a podcast and he was saying this exact point Sarah has just been talking about, there has to be an acceptable level of risk and that has to come at some point. And you saw a decent chunk of Conservative MPs voting against renewing those lockdown restrictions, none of it in a problematic way for Boris Johnson, we hasten to add, because the Labour Party still supported it. But it strikes me that if July the 19th was delayed again, and if we don't get things motoring, then I think there will be much bigger problems for the Prime Minister, because MPs will be saying, well, we've double jabbed all these people, what's the point of it? Yes, and I think it's a mix of a political problem and an economic problem. So on the politics, there was this rebellion when they voted on the restrictions, where there were 49 Conservative MPs who voted against them, including some quite big names there, like Ian Duncan Smith, former party leader, David Davis, former Brexit secretary, Chris Grayling, Karen Bradley, former cabinet ministers, along with five DUP MPs and six Labour MPs. Now, in terms of the parliamentary arithmetic of 489, 4 and 60 against, you know, to quote Star Wars, it's a fairly pitiful band of rebels. But the question is, are they reflecting a growing mood among their constituents? And these things are quite hard to gauge. You know, opinion polls still appear to point to support for the government's measures. But there are a lot of people out there getting frustrated, getting angry with the continuance of this. And I think what people are starting to realise is that you know, one might have hoped in one's imagination a year ago that the ending of this crisis would happen at the flick of a switch where you move from red to green and everything normalises. I think the economic concerns are that you know, there has been a splurge of spending since the restrictions or the first restrictions eased earlier in the spring. But if we have a situation where lots of people are still worried about going anywhere, working in an office, even leaving home, you know, I think we all know people who've suffered from anxiety during this crisis and, and don't necessarily want to sort of go, be going out and spending money. They might be spending money online. But if, you know, for these companies with physical infrastructure, whether you're an office owner or you own a theatre or a cinema, or something like that, there's a big concern about when is business going to return to normal? And it doesn't feel like it's going to be at the end of July when the last restrictions are lifted. It feels like something that's going to linger for quite a long time. And finally, Sarah, what's going to happen between now and July the 19th? So the government's aim is to double jab everybody over 40 and offer every adult a single jab. And I guess by that point, when the immunity has kicked in, then hopefully when things open up and the virus starts to spread, we should be in a much better place. Do you think we're going to then go on to vaccinating teenagers in August? Because that's been a big debate in Whitehall this week. 
Well, this is another very sensitive question, because if we do vaccinate, shall we say, you know, 12 to 17 year olds, we would be doing it primarily to protect older people in the sense that very few teenagers get COVID badly themselves. Now, the COVID vaccine has been approved by regulators and is being rolled out in a number of countries, not least the US, and there have been no ill effects as far as I've heard. But there is always the possibility, of course, that a you know, 13-year-old has a, a very bad reaction to the vaccine. And, and it is a tricky question. I mean, I think the, the issue of double vaccinating, though, for the population at large has become so sensitive because the Delta variant, which is now, of course, massively dominant, there is a very wide disparity with Delta in the protection you get against it from the second dose, as opposed to the first, you get about 80% protection if you've had two doses, and I think only about 30% with one. And that disparity is actually a lot greater than it was with the so-called alpha variant, the Kent variant, as we used to call it. So that unquestionably is why people like Chris Whitty were pressing on the Prime Minister the importance of a, uh, you know, a five-week sprint to double vax as many of the country as possible. So that I think is, you know, your question, what are we going to spend the next few weeks doing? Well, as far as the NHS is concerned, it's definitely trying to get as many people not only double vaccinated, but into their immunity period before a decision is taken about July the 19th. Sarah and Jim, thank you very much. Westminster woke up to a political shock on Friday morning. A by-election in leafy Chesham and Amersham on the outskirts of London was expected to return a Conservative MP, as it has always done. But instead, the Liberal Democrats wiped out a 16,000 vote majority to win the seat for the first time. Thanks to a strong local campaign and tactical messaging on planning and house building, the Tories were beaten. Sarah Louise, the first ever Liberal Democrat MP for the seat, heralded the victory as a turning point for the party. Tonight, the voice of Chesham and Amersham is unmistakable. Together, we have said, enough is enough, we will be heard, and this government will listen. This campaign has shown that no matter where you live, or how supposedly safe a constituency may appear to be, If you want a Liberal Democrat Member of Parliament, you can have a Liberal Democrat Member of Parliament. So Robert Shrimsley, welcome back to the podcast. If we're being truly honest, none of us saw this result coming, that the Lib Dems have been talking up their chances there for quite some time. But a 16,000 Tory majority is quite significant. So what a result. It is a fantastic result for the Lib Dems and one they desperately needed because they've been languishing pretty badly for a long time and they need the relevance of by-elections to um, get them attention and focus. Look, the, 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 there were quite a few conditions that worked against them. The Tory majority in Cheshire and Amersham um, was enormous. They had over half the vote. The government is not particularly unpopular at the moment. So again, reasons for Tory complacency. We have the fundamental issue of nimbyism and planning and housing, which I think was a major issue here. And also the fact that in the last election, the Conservatives had a major factor in their advantage, which was you had to vote Conservative if you didn't want Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister. That has been removed now. And so I think there were conditions there 
which the Lib Dems could exploit. And they have done so. And it's going to store up a lot of problems down the line for Boris Johnson. Well, Jasmine Cameron-Celeste, great to have you back as well. You've actually been out and about in Chesterman. Amersham did a lovely read for the FT weekend about the by-election. Based on what you saw when you were there and the result, what was the mood in the seat and did this surprise you? Well, I felt like the Lib Dems actually had a very clever election strategy. So they tapped into local discontent surrounding two issues. The first being the government's planning reforms. So Ed Davey was arguing that essentially people in their local area want to have their say on you know, what's built. And he argued that there were fears that the planning reforms would change the landscape of the constituency. And so they tapped into that. They also tapped into fears about HS2. There were fears that the project would turn parts of Buckinghamshire into a building site. And so ultimately, the Lib Dem candidate, Sarah Green, was able to successfully argue that she would be able to fight for the area. She'd be able to fight against HS2 and the planning reforms. And she'd be an independent voice and not beholden to the Tory chief whip. And I think that was quite a clever argument, because while the late Cheryl Gillan was obviously a very popular figure, she'd held the seat, I think, since the 90s. The Lib Dems argued that actually the Conservative support was pretty fragile. And a lot of the Conservative vote in the area was a personal vote for the late Cheryl Gillan, and that people actually weren't ideological, they weren't wedded to the Tory party. And actually, that prediction turned out to be right. And so when I spoke to people, you know, local residents, local voters, you know, they raised issues like HS2, the environment. And a lot of the people I spoke to weren't particularly keen on any party, but were keen on the party that was going to address those core issues. Now, Robert, the Lib Dems have a track record going way back um, since the party's inception of doing well in these one-off by-elections. They're very good local campaigners, and as Jasmine just explained. They're very good at finding local issues, tapping into them and capitalising on an anti-politics feeling. That's obviously what they've done here. But how much are the Tories to blame? Because some Lib Dems I've spoken to on Friday have said that actually the Tories ran a really bad, complacent campaign. I think that's relevant. They didn't focus in too hard. But, you know, they sent their big hitters down to the constituency. It's a, it's a neighbouring constituency of Boris Johnson's seat as well. So, I mean, I think sometimes with the by-election tide, there is only so much that you can do if it's running against you. That their strategy was to keep the by-election low profile. They didn't want a lot of fuss. They didn't want a lot of attention. And that's the best way to defend a seat when you're in the governing party often. So it's not necessarily I think that their strategy was terribly wrong. It's that the Lib Dem strategy was very good. And they focused in on the issues of concern. A by-election is a fantastic opportunity for people to send a signal, to have a protest with relatively limited consequences in terms of the government. It's also worth remembering Chesham and Amersham voted to remain. So it was fertile territory for the Lib Dems in general when Jeremy Corbyn was removed from the scene. I I, I think the simple truth is Lib Dems had two or three issues they could bite on. Uh, They'd done well in the local council elections, I think, in Amersham recently. So they had a bit of a power base. They had um, some momentum. They had core issues they could work to. And they're very, very good at doing that. The Lib Dems had a a very good foundation to build off. So they'd won Chester and Amersham Town Council. They'd done moderately well in the local elections. And so they weren't coming out of nowhere. And I think it's also important to note that the demographics in the area are shifting. So as Robert said, it's a Remain voting area. There are lots of young families who have been priced out of London who are moving to places like Chester and Amersham. And it's quite ethnically diverse. So I think there are a lot of factors at play that meant that when Lib Dem activists came knocking, they actually had quite a receptive audience. 
Now, obviously, this issue of planning reform is something that is very central to what Boris Johnson's government wants to do. And they've argued that the 1947 Town and Planning Act that defined much of what can and cannot be built in England is really out of date and it's not fit for purpose and it needs to be completely overhauled. Now, this is something that the Red War Tories, representing those seats in the North and the Midlands, they love this piece of legislation because they want more houses and they want to be able to build, but it's obviously quite unpleasant popular. And Robert, there's been a group of Southern Tory MPs who have been beginning to organise into a kind of research group style outfit to combat these planning reforms, including people like Theresa May, the former Prime Minister, and I think Jeremy Hunt, the former Foreign Secretary as well. Their campaign is obviously going to be boosted significantly by this by-election. You know, do you think they have the numbers to cause Boris Johnson real headaches? Yes, I do. And I think this is going to be the fundamental significance of this by-election, is it's going to add substantial weaponry to that group of Tories. I think there's clearly enough Southern Tories who are very unhappy about planning reform. You know, people move to places like Chesham and Amersham, not for one reason, as Jasmine said, because they're priced out the London market. The other reason is because you can just get a bit more. You get a bigger house, bigger garden, a slightly different lifestyle, and it's still at the end of the metropolitan lines. So you can get to London by tube. The thought that they're going to be hundreds and hundreds or even thousands more homes built up there without the infrastructure to accompany it. These are the kind of concerns that really, really worry people in constituencies like this. And there are constituencies like this all across the home counties. And they already, a lot of Conservatives in the South already hated the planning reforms in the first place. They hated the initial plan for them. They get the idea that they've got to build more houses. They just don't, nobody wants them built near them. So this is a very potent issue for the Conservatives. And even though all Tory MPs understand the argument for housing, they don't want them just imposed on their constituencies, which is what the government feels it has to be able to do. So they will be energised, they will feel able to argue that this approach is going to cost them seats in the South and possibly cost them government, and there are enough of them to cause trouble if they want to do so. So I think this is the long-term significance of this by-election. And there's obviously an opportunity, Jasmine, for the Lib Dems now to become the NIMBY party, that there's 90 constituencies uh, across southern England, mostly across southern England, where the Liberal Democrats came second at the last general election. That's obviously the places where they're going to try and get purchased there. There's an ideological thing they can do. They can obviously talk about their liberal values, as you mentioned, those people kind of moving out of London. But fundamentally, if they go all in on environmental issues and protecting our green and pleasant land, then you could really see there sort of being an opportunity there if the party's able to weaponize it. And obviously, winning all those 90 seats is probably going to be out of reach. But you could see some more upsets like Cheshire and Amersham. Certainly. And I think on these key issues, such as environment and planning, the Liberal Democrats do have an opportunity to sort of claw back some votes. So when I spoke to people in the constituency, obviously you had you know, issues like HS2 and planning came up, but the environment as a whole came up and people are really concerned about preserving their green spaces, preserving how their constituency looks and feels. And that is an area that if the Lib Dems are clever, they can, they can certainly tap into. I would just say, I think they've got to be a bit careful about being too anti-housing and people are not against new homes. They want their children to be able to get somewhere to live. But what there has to be is sensible housing. So I think the Lib Dems have got to structure a way that says coherent housing, better infrastructure, not just slap on a load of houses in a part of town and not worry about it. Now, we should also mention that even though it wasn't a good night for the Conservatives, it was a really bad night for the Labour Party as well. At the last general election, they got 7,000 votes. And in the election before that, in 2017, uh, they actually came second place with 20% of the vote. 
At the by-election, they got 622 votes, 1.6% of the vote, Robert. And that's a massive drop. And I think Labour actually lost its deposit. And there's obviously a huge amount of tactical voting going on there. But that doesn't exactly bode well for Keir Starmer, a party of government, coming, you know, fourth place. I mean, actually, I don't, I don't put anything by this at all. I think it was a classic by-election squeeze. The Lib Dems had been the clear second-place party historically there. They lost ground after the um, coalition, uh, and they got it back, got second place back, I think, at the last election. This is a classic by-election squeeze where only one party can be the challenger and people rally around it, and the Labour vote collapsed. I don't think they put any effort in. So, you know, although, you know, they would have been more comfortable if they got a few more votes, the truth is this is, this is nothing to read into except a typical by-election squeeze. And I guess that's the thing, Jasmine, that in normal political times, having a by-election when you're 11 years into a Conservative government, you would be losing these kind of seats. And we've seen that again and again. I think in some ways we've been conditioned because of what happened in Hartlepool and what might happen in Batley and Spend because of the red wall effect of the Tories winning all these seats to actually be a bit nullified to the fact that actually, in some ways, this is quite a normal victory for the government to get a kicking. Yeah, I think that's right. And definitely echoing Robert's point about, you know, there being an element of a protest vote. The Conservatives have been in power for a long time. They've been in power for a long time in this particular constituency. And, you know, if you're a resident who's concerned about some of these issues, planning the environment, then the Lib Dems did provide a viable alternative. And I think it's also important to remember that the Lib Dems actually weren't campaigning on, you know, the government's handling of the pandemic or Tory sleaze or some of the big national issues that have dominated the conversation. They were really keeping it local, focusing on the issues where residents felt like they'd been neglected. And so I don't know how much we can read into this given by-election as to where the Tory party stands. And I do think there is an element of, you know, as you said, the Tories have been in power a long time and there, there must be some sort of, you know, fatigue in local areas. And I think this is just an example of that. And then finally, Robert, where does this leave Boris Johnson here? Because obviously he's not going to be particularly happy at the result. We've talked about the planning issue, and I think you're right. That is going to be the most consequential thing that those Tories will mobilise and will try and neuter parts of the planning reform bill. But the Prime Minister is probably not going to face any particular repercussions, you would think, from this, because he's still in a pretty commanding position. And of course, coronavirus still dominates everything. And as long as the vaccine programme continues to go ahead and the government still rides high, in the polls, there can't be that much blowback, you'd think. I think it's more a shot across the bows than a sort of direct hit. It's, some, it's a warning to him that you can't take everything for granted. And it's a warning to pay a little bit more attention to the South and the things that are worrying them. And particularly, as we've discussed, around planning. It's not going to derail the government. It's not going to force a leadership challenge or any of those things. Governing parties do lose by election. So it's not an earth shattering moment, but it's a warning to him. And I think it's a warning he'd do well to heed, and I suspect he will. And it's a rallying call to Southern Tories. So it, it, it's not something he can simply just brush aside. And then, Desmond, if we think about the next election, which is obviously some point in the future, is this the sort of seat the Lib Dems could hold, do you think? You know, obviously, until this by-election, it was an unbroken streak of blue. Based on your time going around there, could you see the kind of place if the Tories get a better campaign and maybe a different candidate with a different message they could take back? Or do you think it's going to stay Lib Dem for a little while longer? I don't think that's massively clear at the moment. I mean, what is clear is that residents are clearly, you know, in the mood for a change and that on some of these big issues, there is a sense that 
the government has sort of neglected particular sets of voters, or as Robert said, taken some voters for granted. I think in terms of whether, you know, we're going to see a massive Lib Dem resurgence, I think this almost marks the return of where we're seeing Lib Dems winning by-elections and slowly becoming more relevant. I think it's at this point, it's a bit early to say, you know, whether what the the national picture will look like in the next election. I think there's so much that that can change between now and then. I agree. And I think based on the predictions that many people made about this by-election, it's probably for the best that we don't look that far into the future. Bob and Jasmine, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all those usual places on Apple, Spotify, Google and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also love positive reviews and ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineer was Breen Turner. And until next time, thank you for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.